What a joyous opportunity it is this Sunday morning to gather in the way that we are, to pray, to sing, to in fact express the heartfelt thoughts of our heart to the great God who made us. So many things that we have for which to be thankful. Surely, as we come to this part of our service today, isn't it true that I'm going to ask you about your vision? I'm not talking about a visit to the optometrist. How's your vision and what about mine? The title of the lesson is Seeing Clearly. A moment ago, Brother Andrew just read from Luke 6, verse 42, and in that passage you'll notice Jesus said something about seeing clearly. And for the next few moments this morning, why don't we, in fact, make application of that principle to a number of features of our life in service to Jesus Christ. It's often been said, and it still is true, isn't it? It's not so much how you and I see things, it's how God sees it. It's how Christ sees it. It's how He sees you and me. Some of these introductory thoughts. There were a number of times in the Bible when individuals thought that they were seeing rather appropriately, and yet God through His prophets or through His New Testament inspired individuals warned them, what you're perceiving is not really the way it is. I chose the example of Haggai chapter 1, verse 6. They were earning wages, God told them, but you're earning the wages to put in a bag with holes in it. Wouldn't that be tremendous? Wouldn't that be so sad to think you'll show up at judgment with a sack full of riches and you show up with an empty bag because Jesus says, don't you know, you put the things that you thought you were earning in a bag with a bunch of holes in it. And yet, following that principle, look at some of these questions. Several times, especially in the New Testament, God used His inspired individuals to ask what really amounted to a rhetorical question. Know ye not? And then the question that followed was something they obviously knew, but they weren't seeing it correctly. For instance, in Romans 6, verses 3 and 16, that one had to do with baptism. There were some things about what happened at the moment of baptism they didn't appreciate as thoroughly and as powerfully as they should have. Or the text in James 4 verse 4, the friendship with the world. Don't you know that that makes you the enemy of God? Now I say all of that to say this. As often as this idea is put before us in Scripture, it certainly is worth our while to ask today. How does the Lord see me? And how does He see you? And so we're going to look, as time permits, at a number of these things. And so often our vision can be cloudy. It can be misdirected. Let's look at the first case, the first example. It has to do with the collection, the contribution. At times, aren't you amazed at how a $10 bill can look so great resting in this collection plate? But yet it seems so little when you want to go to the restaurant, to the movies, to Walmart. The idea is clear enough, isn't it? You and I have to be very mindful of our viewpoint, our appreciation. Because the New Testament has much to say about what God not only commands concerning it, but what He demands. Look at some of these verses. In Matthew 6, verse 21, Jesus said, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where's your heart and mind today? 
Is our heart more centered on those matters material and those matters that are carnal in character? Or do we thrill at the thought of giving as we have been prospered? Because that's the way we're commanded to give. In 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, as Paul addressed comments to the church in Corinth, he said, Every one of you, as God hath prospered him, that he should lay by in store. And so as those inspired statements were provided then, of course they continue to be the pattern of demand for today. You'll notice one of the passage in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. When that plate passes and we perhaps put in that amount, are we thrilled to do it? God loves a cheerful giver, you know. You and I are told that if we give grudgingly, if we give with a heart preferring not to, if we give in such a way that although we have, but we really would far prefer to have kept it, God isn't as pleased with that. Now, it's not to say He won't use the funds for His good and glory, but in terms of our personal benefit, it'll be lacking. May we always be sure to be cheerful, prosperous in light of giving in the way the New Testament identifies. Isn't this a case then when sometimes our vision can be cloudy? We aren't seeing quite clearly enough. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, a principle set before us all throughout the Word of God, and I suppose we think more of it maybe at this season of the year. But isn't it still true that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above? And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Whatever good thing you have, God gave it to you. It doesn't matter what it is, your health, your house, the features of the love you enjoy in your family, all of it is a predicating consequence of the greatness of God in heaven. And therefore, when it comes to our opportunity to give to His service and His cause, May we do that with appropriate mentality and a mindset desirous and happy to contribute to the kingdom of Christ. What about a second example? In what other way might our vision be less than it ought to be? I'd like to challenge you to think about this one. Isn't it interesting how that there are times when we bat not an eye to spend three hours watching a ball game? We have not the slightest thought of spending two hours watching a movie. And yet two hours at church services can seem like an eternity. If that's the case, the problem is not with the Word of God. The problem is with you or me. Where is our priority in a case like that? What about our passion, the thing that we risk most highly? Again, think about how time something sometimes can seem so different. If you and I realize on Sunday morning, it's only two hours from the beginning of Bible study to the close of the worship service. Sunday night, it's less than an hour. Wednesday night, also a bit less than an hour. And every week has 168 hours in it, from 12 midnight turning Saturday to Sunday until exactly one week later. Is it not then reasonable to think that surely I could give four of those hours, four out of 168, in terms of service and honoring and homage and obeisance to God because He has commanded it? Let's make application like some of these things. Again, our sense, our appreciation of the spending of that time, 
the Hebrew people in the book of Hebrews, they themselves were in a very challenging situation. The persecution had become extreme. Difficulties in terms of opposing forces had become rather noticeable. On Wednesday night, we've been studying in the book of Revelation. And we have found that in that book, of course, persecution was rather extreme. And by the time we reached the days of Nero and afterward, that persecution only heightened. The book of Hebrews was written to Christians who themselves were in fact beginning to suffer this. And although it hadn't got as extreme as it did later in Revelation, you'll note what the temptation was. The temptation for some had reached to the point that, I think I'll not go today. What was it the inspired writer said? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. As the manner of some is, some had already gotten into the habit of not coming. The inspired writer said, don't do that. Not forsaking the assembly. Now, as you think about that verse 25 of Hebrews 10, let's make some direct applications for you and me in these questions. If our desire is to go to heaven, where are we going to learn about things of righteousness? Where are we going to learn about attributes and characteristics and qualities that will be required at the day of judgment? The TV is not going to give them to me. The school system is never going to do it. Our government will not. May I ask, where of all places on earth, where are we going to learn righteousness and truth and the attributes of pleasingness to God? Surely if there's any place, it would be that place where those who are the pillar and ground of the truth will meet. And that's what the church is. 1 Timothy 3 verse 15. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul made a rather dramatic presentation. He listed the so-called panoply of God, the so-called armor, if you please. And you and I are supposed to be wearing everything from the helmet of salvation to having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Where are we going to learn about those elements of armament? The services of the church will be one key place to be sure. And therefore, as we contemplate that one, what about the next one? May I suggest there will be a rather haunting question I ask on the Day of Judgment to those who knew about the, the assemblies, but who willfully chose not to come. May I ask, how will any person answer? When Jesus says, why didn't you come on Sunday night? Why weren't you there on Wednesday night? You could have been encouraged. You could have exhorted others, in fact. And you deliberately chose, though you could have been there, not to come. May I ask why? Now, the Lord already will know your heart, so you won't have to tell Him anything. But can you imagine trying to construct an answer that has any semblance, any semblance of credibility to it? When he says, you know, I went to the cross for you. I was scourged for you. I was so terribly mutilated and died for you. And couldn't you at least attend the services for me? There will be no answer anybody can give. If judgment begins first at the household of God, what's going to be the end of them that obey not the gospel? To borrow the question of 1 Peter 4.17. And with that, there's some names of some individuals that perhaps sound funny, but really they're eternally serious. What about individuals such as Miss Lotta Services? Do you suppose the Lord would look with favor upon an individual like that? 
or that person that you might call, I want to stay home. Or what about number three? Miss, I'll come back someday. Or maybe in the final analysis, Mr. I'd be bored. Number five, Dan, rather be elsewhere. One by one, again, as you ponder the names, again, they may sound rather humorous. It's not intended to be. The last few are these. Mr. I am lukewarm. To the church at Laodicea, in Revelation chapter 3, what a dramatic picture was set before that congregation. Remember, they thought that all was well, that they were rich and that they were plenty generous. But yet the Lord said, don't you know you're miserable, wretched, naked, blind, and poor? Five things He told them in Revelation 3. Now let's finish our list. Mr. Fill my pew for me. Nobody can attend the services for me or you. It's an individual obligation. It's a requirement of the God of heaven, and it's a sin if I fail to do it. If I can be there and choose not to be, I've sinned. One final one is this one. Miss, I'm in a bad mood. None of those... None of those would be good descriptions and surely none of us would want to be known as a person like it. Again, what about your vision and mine? As you and I read the book of Acts, we find those early Christians were excited to gather daily. If our elders saw fit for you and I to assemble on on a daily basis, we ought to try to the best of our ability to be here and yet to meet three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday evening. May we make them high priority, and if at all possible, to thrill at the opportunities and the blessing that God has afforded us to meet. What about element number three in our vision? This one takes us to the general word of activity. Again, may I ask this question? Aren't you amazed sometimes at how the sense can be I'm tired. And maybe after a hard day at work, that tiring, I don't think I'll go on services tonight. It's Wednesday. I'm I'm just too tired. But I'm telling you what, we don't ever seem too tired to spend time with recreation, ball games, and otherwise. We find the time for where our heart is, you see. And when it comes to an activity such as, again, those things surrounding the programs of the church and the characteristics that attach to it. What about that activity? And what kind of place and priority must it have? Let's develop it like this. In Ezekiel 33, verse 31, in the days of the Old Testament, there were some gentlemen who came and sat down before Ezekiel. And they gave the appearance of righteousness and piousness and an appearance of desiring to be approved of God. And God had Ezekiel give them a very special message. Your heart's not in it. They were putting on a show, in other words. They were hypocritical. They gave the impression of it, but their heart really wasn't attuned to what God demanded of them. Their heart wasn't in it. Now that question will never cease to be a good one. What about your heart and mine? Is it in service to God, or do we love this world too much? Do we find our satisfaction? Do we find 
our ultimate meaning in life and those things touching the materialistic aspects of it. Didn't Paul say in Romans 8, 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. I suppose it would be fair to say, as you come to the bottom part of that slide, I've often been impressed, haven't you, as you come to Matthew chapter 22. Jesus, the previous days, had undergone such long, demanding, challenging tasks. He was beset on every circumstance. As soon as one person would come and ask Him a question, right after that there would be another one. And yet our Savior answered those questions. He taught them with appropriateness and with a demeanor, a spirit that was so lovely. And all the while He knew that in a matter of days He was headed to the cross. Jesus seemingly knew very well the features I've tried to write at the bottom of that slide. He set before not only those of His day, the features and characteristics of devotion and dedication to God. What about you and me? As circumstances in our world continue to develop, we've often said it and still shall continue to do it. We do not know what the future and those specifics will hold. But if things continue to turn worse, if society begins to oppress Christianity more, if the time comes that it becomes against the law to maintain a Bible and read it, to assemble with the saints, will you and I have enough dedication and determination to God that we shall do what He commands rather than what the state does? You see, the freedom we now enjoy should never be taken for granted. It might well be fair to say that when those times come, God's going to know who shall be faithful or not. It'll be easy to tell the faithful ones. And if we can't be faithful now when it should be relatively easy, what about those circumstances when it's far harder? Sometimes you and I have heard those statements about if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen... God used a statement like that in the book of Jeremiah, encouraging them, you had it sweet and fine and your opportunity for faithfulness was notable and now that difficulty has come. God told Jeremiah, you're going to have to have an increased element of passion and determination. What about Paul as an example in 2 Corinthians 11, one who suffered shipwreck and beating and scourging, on so many occasions, and yet he did it all because he loved the Lord and he loved the gospel. One final thing about seeing clearly. If you and I are commanded to have the mind of Christ, and that we are, Philippians 2.5, then it causes us to think about the level of our activity and our passion, the excitement surrounding in our heart to the service of God. Is coming to the services as we are today just a habit? I've done it every Sunday for the last 45 years, somebody might say. And if that's the only reason I've done it, there's something missing. There's something lacking. For after all, those in Laodicea could claim that in Revelation 3, but their heart wasn't in it. Your heart and mine are such that we need to worship God in spirit. John 4, 24 That means our passion, our enthusiasm, we really thrill with eagerness at the thought of it. Does that characterize you and me? 
I trust that it does. And if you and I need to work on it, may we use the Word of God to help us because doesn't it say, Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. So far we've looked at three elements wherein one's perception might be a bit askew. How about a fourth one? You'll notice I've entitled this one, Words That Are Used. Aren't you a bit interested on occasion that we seemingly have no difficulty finding something positive to say about certain things in life? But when it comes to the church, do we speak with positive thrust and character about the very entity for which Christ died? Or is our major thrust to run down the song leader and the songs he chose? The poor poor and dry sermon the preacher chose to preach. The fact the service went one minute past long lengths that I expected it to. You see, isn't it interesting how we can major in these matters that quite frankly say a lot about where our heart is. And as others hear it, they are led in fact to have a negative viewpoint toward not only us, but what that group of people is supposed to do. If that's the way that they are, if that's the way that they think, if that's the considerations that they give, that sounds much too negative for me. I believe I'd rather go somewhere else. Can't you see and can't we all see that those positive words bring us to verses like these? In Colossians 4 verse 6, as Paul in fact gave orders to the Colossian congregation, it was to them, he said, let your speech be always with grace. How often, Paul, he said, always seasoned with salt. Now surely you and I realize there are occasions and times when direct language is needful. But those kind of examples I just listed, common conversation that are overrun with negative viewpoints toward the church, we're guilty of sin if we're doing that. We're guilty of running down the very organization that Christ shed His blood to die for. And in so doing, Acts twenty twenty eight highlights that those elders on that occasion were told, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which He hath purchased with His own blood. That church that was purchased with His blood you and I ought to strive to respect it, to honor her so much so that this verse is found in Ephesians 3.21. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Glory in the church. I know that in our better moments, you and I are thrilled to be a member of it, for we know that's the only way we can be saved. And yet as we speak of it in the hearing of others. Why don't we come to this verse? 1 Thessalonians 5.11 commands of you and me the business of exhortation, the business of edification. May I ask, if we're speaking like these examples I've just listed in the hearing of others, is that in edifying in them a proper perspective on the church? And that answer, of course, speaks for itself. And so, what about your life and mine and the language we choose to use? That positive thrust will close this slide like this. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul gave a description of the way he viewed the church at Corinth. 
Now remember, this church had problems, and we've seen that on Wednesday night in, in dramatic abundance. A congregation who seems had questions about a lot of things and were even abusing many things, and yet Paul was thankful for them. He was appreciative of them, and he was hopeful that they would, of course, revisit the nature of their firmness and their faithfulness. But he did speak of them in a very high way. Now that reminds us, that viewpoint that should be ours. Yet another attribute, another place in which our vision could be askew. Look at this one. I hinted at it a moment ago, but let's develop it perhaps in this way now. This that I've entitled Sacrificial Living. Isn't it interesting how, again, in life, we on occasion can be so sacrificial when it comes to many things. We will selflessly give of ourselves. If our son or our daughter asks something of us, we will go to almost no limits to help them. Have you ever had a circumstance where your son or daughter, Oh, Dad, Mom, I forgot. I've got a science project due tomorrow. And suddenly you realize you're going to be up all night long trying to get that done. Now, maybe you encourage him or her, don't let this happen again, but then you turn around. You make a quick trip to Walmart and then work all night long to get that done. You sacrifice willingly because you love that son or daughter, you care about them, and you want them to have a good grade. What about other examples of sacrificial living? I've listed some considerations here. Sometimes an activity takes place, a circumstance in touching one of the programs of the church. And then someone says, I need more advance notice. If you'd let me know that six weeks ago, I could have planned for it. I could have made proper preparation. Well, one more time, isn't it interesting? There are occasions in life we happily are able to set aside so many other things, even sleep if necessary, so that we can take care of what needs to be taken care of. Well, it's just something to cause us to again ponder, where's my heart and where's my priority and what about you? Is service to God literally more important than anything else? Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, Take up His cross daily and follow me. The Lord stated that in a very specific order, didn't He? Deny self first, take up His cross daily, and follow me. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 6, in the midst of that passage where He spoke about the nature of things in life and characteristics of what's involved in our life in this flesh, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things should be added to you. In a world that is so often crushing our shoulders beneath the weight of work demands and community demands and demands related to other activities in life, we as Christians have a challenge and a charge to make sure we always keep our service to Christ as top priority. Maybe it is we can add some of these thoughts to our life. There's a song we sing quite often, I suppose more often than not before the Lord's Supper is when we sing it. But it has a grand message for so many other occasions as well. I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given to me? Isn't that a good question? Jesus 
in such a sacrificial way, gave His life for all of us. And it is through His sacrifice that we are not only able to be children of God, but to hold in us that dramatic and that beautiful hope of heaven. I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given to me? Do we reserve a part of our heart? Basically, we want it for ourselves. We don't want the Lord to have that. If so, I've, I've got a bit of a problem here. For as often as the Old Testament, they were to, in fact, serve the Lord and love God with all their heart. How much does that leave out? None of it. Does that characterize you and me? One last thing on that slide. One of the things that we had the privilege of hearing, those of us that attended Polishing the Pulpit back in August, Dan Winkler preached the sermon that Sunday morning. And I think it was a lesson that touched all of us that heard it. It had a very, very intriguing title. And I know we all were anxious to hear it even as we learned what the title was going to be. Didn't Mary have cheaper perfume was the title. And for those of you that remember that sermon, you already remember what it was about. As Dan developed that sermon, he built it around the thought of Mark chapter 14. And he did so because you remember the scene when Mary came to Christ and she took an alabaster box of ointment and poured it upon His feet and some of it upon His head. And as we begin to ask about that, some, including Judas who watched it, said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? This could have been sold and used to help the poor. And Jesus rebuked them and He defended what Mary did. And all of that brings us to this question. That alabaster box of ointment, how much did that ointment cost and what was it worth? The point Dan made is this, and it never ceases to be amazing now, now that we have it in mind. That ointment that Mary poured on Jesus' feet cost a year's wages. Think about that. Suppose you had in your possession some bottle of perfume. Perhaps some people may earn $60,000 in a year. What if you had a bottle of $60,000 perfume? Would you be willing to pour it out on Jesus' feet? Didn't Mary have cheaper perfume? Maybe she did. But look at what she did with what she had. She gave it to the Lord. And doesn't it remind you of the widow's mites? In Luke 21, here was a lady who as she cast into the treasury, all she was able to give was two mites. But Jesus complimented her soul when He said she gave all she had. Mary gave all she had. Do you and I give all we have? That's a good question. Perhaps it's the most important question we'll ever ask ourselves. Let's close that slide by again noting that perfume that Mary used is a timeless challenge to you and me to make sure to not ever try to give Jesus the cheap stuff. He's worth much more than that. And so let's close our lesson like this. Obedience. There are times in life when we have not the slightest problem obeying the law, police officers, teachers, judges, but what about obeying Christ? Isn't it interesting how that viewpoint can seemingly be so different? I'm happy to do whatever a teacher tells me to do. 
I'm happy to do whatever some law official tells me to do. I'm happy to do what some other individual may tell me to do. But what about when God tells me to do something? Do I rebel? Do I resist? Do I find every excuse I can think of to get out of it? Do I try to find loopholes? May I say there is no loopholes in the gospel business. There aren't any. Maybe it is then these final thoughts. The Word of God has set before us the fact if we expect to please God and if we do want to go to heaven, obedience is a requirement. It isn't optional. It's not something we can find a way to get out of. The gospel message is that simple. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, John 14, 15. The gospel plan of salvation, you must believe with your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus required that. He stated it in Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But that belief alone must be followed by repentance. Upon the reality of that belief, one now understands what the Lord has done and is willing to make extensive effort to remove from life those sinful activities in which one has previously been engaged. That's what repentance is, that change of mind that produces a change of behavior. With that repentance, that belief, just prior to baptism, one makes a verbal confession, a profession, if you please, about the nature of belief and what one is doing. And it is a sweet confession. And following that, one then buries the old man of sin. We call it baptism. Romans 6 verses 3 and 4 describe immersing someone in water, and in so doing you bury the old man of sin, and up comes a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And this person, this individual is now not the same as he or she was before. It's not that they're just wet, but they weren't before. They are now a Christian. They've been added to the church. They've been cleansed in the blood of Christ. Now, walking faithfully till death, heaven will be theirs. And all through life, they have the constant assistance and encouragement and the strength of Jesus Christ at their disposal. It might be today there's someone in this audience who is such that your vision hasn't been clear enough. You've allowed it to become cloudy and fuzzy. And some of these examples we've seen are such that you've begun to see things this way. May I suggest, clear up that vision Jesus, as the great physician, is also the perfect optometrist. And so if you'll come to Him, He will make that vision plain and you will be able to see clearly. Jesus there did say in Luke 6.42, didn't He? That He gives the instructions that allows one to see clearly. If you have become a wayward child of God, why don't you come back to your first love today? If those sins have been known in a public way, in a public venue... You need brethren to know that you have made a change in heart, that you've repented and that in your confession of those things, you want to beg their strength and beg them to pray to God for you. And today, what a joyous occasion we would have as we could do that for you. If there would be anyone in the audience with a need such as these, we would encourage you to come and to allow yourself to be able to see clearly and to do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.